Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, Culture Editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Feel free to subscribe over to the premium content on thefederalist.com as well. Uh, we are joined today by Dr. Michael P. Foley. He is a professor of patristics in the Great Texts program at Baylor University. He's a Catholic theologian, a mixologist, and the author or editor of over a dozen books and around 500 articles on topics including sacred liturgy, St. Augustine of Hippo, and contemporary film and culture. He's the author of the new book, Dining with the Saints, The Sinner's Guide to a Righteous Feast, which will be out on February 28th. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Just the, the bio there, uh, going from theologian to mixologist to prolific author is incredible. <laughs> Could you walk listeners a little bit uh, through your background uh, before we get started here? So I am a theologian. I teach at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and uh, I've, I love teaching the great books. I'm in the great text program. But I also have other interests as well. Um, my wife and I have uh, six kids, and she homeschools mostly. And uh, as a result of that, we also like to drink. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Quite quite necessary at the end of the day. Um, but we also like the feast days of the church year. So we brought those two things together in uh, three cocktail books that I wrote: drinking with the saints. Uh, drinking with Saint Nick, drinking with your patron saints. But then after having written these three books about drinking, it occurred to me, we should probably have some food with that. <laughs> you know, if you're drinking, you should probably eat. And so now we have dining with the saints that has come out. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the process of putting this book together? It's a really beautiful book. And there's so many, uh, obviously you walked through every month and that involves so much storytelling and so much cooking as well. So as you're trying to lay out a book for the entire year, can you just give us a little insight into what that process was like? Absolutely. So the basic idea is it follows the church calendar and our hope is that, uh, Christians of a wide variety of stripes will be able to use this because this is a centuries old calendar. And so for various feast days of like a saint's day or Christmas or Easter, we try to find the appropriate food to have on that day. And sometimes it was easy because there is a very long, old and vast culinary tradition in Christianity. There are, for example, hundreds of traditional Christmas foods, depending on which culture you consult. And the same goes for Easter. 
uh, so we we dug deep and we found what are the traditional foods. And then if necessary, we updated them so that they're more palatable for a modern audience. Hmm. And what are the origins of the recipes? Uh, that was one big question I had as I was flipping through it. Some really, really interesting recipes. Um, did you come up with them? Are they traditional in some cases? It's probably a mix of different things. It is a mix. So I co-authored this book with Father Leo Petalinkug, who is this magnificent master chef. He has his own TV show. He beat Bobby Flay in a contest. Uh, so he's he's got good credentials. So he provided the recipes and I provided the stories, which was a really good match. You don't want an Irishman in the kitchen. <laughs> As Father Leo is much better suited for this than I. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Do you have a favorite recipe um, of all of them? Is there one that really stands out to you? So I'll be honest with you. I have not uh, verified every single one of his recipes. There are a lot. <laughs> there are a lot. And, you know, I, I trust this guy and who am I to judge? Um, but I have gone through several of them and everyone has been a winner. But one that really sticks out is... Um, there's a potato recipe, gratin dauphinois. It's this really rich potato dish, lots of cream and cheese. And I made it for my family. And a couple of my kids are picky eaters. And when they had this, they said, this is the best potato I have ever had. I did not know that a potato could taste this good. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to go wrong with potatoes and cheese. So that's a <laughs> understandable. Yeah. Now, yeah. is there a favorite? So listeners should know that the recipes are paired with um, kind of these, these paragraphs or stories about the individual saints. They're more than a paragraph. I imagine that a lot of work went into um, sort of summarizing, especially for an audience who uh, is, is cooking based around the calendar and based around the food in question, uh, what the, the saint did, basically, the, some of the basics. Um, is there a favorite coupling or is there one day you think everything just sort of comes together really well that it's it makes so much sense, this, this recipe, this saint on this day comes together in a, in a very um, maybe enlightening way for the reader and the chef? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I like to think that we did that with all of them, but one that does stick out is St. Francis of Assisi. Mm. So this was a great saint who practiced a great mortification. You know, he fasted rigorously. He lived a life of extreme poverty but, you know, even saints had personal preferences. And as he was dying on his deathbed, he had a female friend who made this wonderful almond treat. And he said, you know, before I, I meet my maker, I'd really like that, that cookie one more time. <laughs> <laughs> and so she actually had the same idea and she prepared a batch. And uh, just as he sent the messenger out to ask for the cookies she knocked on the door with a, a tray of these cookies um and i just thought that was really heartwarming that you know you're on your deathbed you're a saint but you know i really would like an almond cookie right now <laughs> um and then the, the way it was brought was also kind of interesting so we have a a, a really delicious almond nutella cookie for uh for saint francis and then we also had um there's some funny stories about his um his dinners uh 
there that they would they would get so they would have such great dinner conversation that uh, about the love of God that they would sort of kind of go into a trance and then forget to eat dinner. <laughs> so they have these great dinners, but the dinners were left untouched. So you know, there, there are all kinds of great stories about the saints like that. Mm. When it wasn't, you know, that's a good example of one where there's a really obvious food pairing based on that story. When there wasn't such an obvious pairing, um, and maybe Father Leo has uh, was involved in this as well, what's the process look like of assigning a recipe to a specific saint on a specific day when, you know, you're trying to come up with, uh, how, you know, what food makes sense with this particular saint? That's right. So number one, we did try to find the the saints personal food preferences and we did i was i was surprised that we had enough information where we could make those kinds of calls uh number two we would see if there were any traditional foods associated with the saint whether or not they like them right so one of my favorite stories was uh saint anthony in the desert he was a great great saint but he was kind of a party pooper at dinners because in the middle of dinner, he would all often break into tears and bemoan the fact that, you know, he couldn't just simply feast alone on the bread of angels, <laughs> but had to somehow, you know, feed his body with lowly earthly things. So not a sparkling dinner conversationalist, St. Anthony, but his symbol in Christian art is a pig. And so it is traditional on his feast day to have a pork dish. What he would have thought of that, heaven knows, but that is the traditional thing. Hmm. The third option is if we, if we couldn't do number one or number two, uh, you know, a lot of these saints come from regions that have a rich culinary tradition. So we might find something that pairs from his region. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of pairing the act of cooking and then the act of eating with also an act of sort of intellectual consumption as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the importance of coming up with those, um, th those I guess, snippets of insight into this individual saint? And, uh, you know, like, for instance, with uh, St. Teresa, uh, you have a, w a wonderful quote from her about... Uh, God being present in small things. I'm obviously paraphrasing, uh, but right. something, uh, you know, the, the small acts can be a uh, big, you know, it's the spiritual significance of them. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight into that process and what that looked like? Absolutely. So, so one, the, the goal is not just good cooking. The goal of the cookbook is actually to cultivate uh, Christian festivity, Christian merriment, um, and then also specifically the family meal. And we, we should get into that later. The The family meal is on decline, uh, but the family meal is so important for the happiness of the family, but also child development. So anyway, what we do in the book is provide good recipes, but we also provide content for good conversation. Mm. So the saints' stories will provide some grist for the mill for conversation. But we also have a call-out section called Food for Thought, which is a very specific spiritual reflection on the life of the saint or the meaning of this meal. 
Yeah, let's dive right into the family meal section, because I I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask about the the spirituality, not just of cooking, but then the spirituality of eating. Uh, But I think the family meal is a really good place to start and the decline of the family meal. A lot of people might wave it away um, and say we can find family time in another way. And whether or not that's true is a different question. Uh, But the significance of the meal in and of itself, can you uh, sort of flesh that point out? Well, you know, it still remains a mystery to me why, when you think about it, why something so selfish as eating, because let's be honest, it's a selfish act. My body is unshareable and I I consume unshareable goods to keep it going. That means there's less of these unshareable goods for you. So it is kind of a selfish act. And yet, I mean, you know, going back to the origins of mankind, Eating together has become the the symbol of sharing and commonality par excellence, right? Um, so the meal has always had huge significance for human beings. And for the family to eat together, it becomes, I think, in many respects, one of the most important channels for passing on uh, wisdom and happiness from one generation to the other. So we've seen a huge decline in the family meal. I think it's 30% decline in the last several decades. And we have been able to trace the effect that that has had on young people. And we've been able to, with some certainty, trace smaller vocabularies, lower academic performance, higher anxiety, Hmm. increased substance abuse, increased unwanted pregnancies and increased suicidal ideation. And among adults, uh, in an increase of, or I should say a decrease of mental and physical health and increased divorce rates. You must start taking care of your liver now more than ever. Why? Well, because the latest data from the American Heart Association indicates that adults with fatty liver were 3.5 times more likely to have heart failure than those without. The American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers, cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There is a solution, Liver Health Formula, an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. Manufactured right here in the USA and approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy. You're also getting four free ebooks to support every aspect of your health. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash Federalist and claim your five free bonus gifts. That's getliverhelp.com slash Federalist. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any 
retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Amazing. Um, and on that point, let's get into the, I'll do one at a time. Uh, let's start with the spirituality of, of cooking a meal. Um, what maybe we can, what wisdom we can maybe glean from scripture, um, but also just for 2023, uh, you know, what, what sort of significance that might have in uh, the life of somebody inundated by digital technology. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, my co-author, Father Leo, has been doing this sort of family ministry as a Catholic priest for years. And one of the things that he recommends is that couples cook a meal together at least once a week. So it is important to eat together for the reasons we were just discussing. But even cooking together has a certain kind of bonding moment. And uh, it is true. It can lead to some tensions in the kitchen. <laughs> people have different styles and some people don't like to be the sous chef or whatever, but, um, but it is important and it's, a, it's sort of a bonding moment. Yeah. And there's something also about, um, you know, in a world of such convenience and all of the technological shortcuts we've developed, um, making your own food, not just in many cases, most people aren't, you know, hunting their own food, gathering their own food. But there is something that I, maybe it's gratitude. I don't know. I'm curious for your thoughts that when you actually have to you know, put your own food together, um, there's something that sort of connects us to to nature, to our nature, not just the outside world around us, but also our, our need to uh, you know, feed and have sustenance. That's absolutely right. And I think in, in some respects, that reaches its maximum when it's food that you have harvested yourself, right? As you know, your, your garden or maybe hunting, uh, that, that when you bring that back to the table, there is almost a kind of sacramental gratitude for the, the fruits of the earth and the goods of the land. So I've had that experience, both gardening and hunting, that it becomes extra special when it, like this is something that came from uh, a more direct channel rather than just buying it at the, the supermarket. But that said, buying it at the supermarket is also a meaningful experience. And not, not maybe the supermarket, but the, the very fact of uh, cooking together adds more meaning to the meal. Mm. Yeah, we published a piece uh, this month in February by one of our contributors, Georgie Borman, who wrote about how gardening uh, helped her, I think, get on an off-ramp to an anti-anxiety medication, um, and that it was sort of providing meaning and, and purpose uh, to feed her family in a new way. And it sounds like that's what you're getting at, that, you know, when you, there's that level of self-reliance. You're absolutely right. And that actually reminds me... Uh, my mother, God rest her soul, was a very wise woman. And when I was a little boy, I hated vegetables. Yes. So she got me to garden. She said, have you ever tried gardening? And, that, and as a kid, I was fascinated. The first thing we grew were uh, beets, and they grew really fast. So only within a couple of weeks, we'd see the little green shoots come up. And I was so excited. And then as a result, I could not wait to eat them. Hmm. 
And oh, that's, that's how genius. she got me to eat vegetables. Yeah, I know it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to the spiritual, the spirituality of cooking or of eating, um, which is another thing that kind of jumped out. I think it's in the introduction of your book. You talk about gratitude, obviously, and the importance of the act of, of saying grace and expressing thanks to God for the food in front of you. Um, but also, as you were talking earlier, there is something, um, again, uh, selfish, right, inherently about the, the act of consuming food. It is your body and your body only, um, and you can't share uh, the food that you're consuming necessarily, unless you're a bird, I suppose, a mother bird. But um, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, uh, again, is there anything we can glean from scripture about uh, the consumption of food? Um, what is it that can can bring us spiritual meaning from consuming food, from eating? Yeah, you asked for a good scriptural quote, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, I'm a typical Catholic in that I can't provide uh, direct quotes to the Bible very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, good. <laughs> um, but uh, but I I do have a sense of the, if you will, the biblical culture. And I am struck by this, the importance of the meal throughout the Old and New Testament. Mm. I think of, I think of the fact that the highest, uh, the the most solemn and most important day of the year on the Jewish calendar was the Feast of Passover, and it was a sacrifice and a meal. Like why, why would a meal be the, in a sense the most solemn liturgy for the Hebrews, right? Um, and you think of the, the the wedding of Cana and the importance of uh, Zacchaeus. Come, I'm dining at your house tonight, right? The, the salience of of meals in the New Testament, and you know Jesus ate with Pharisees. Mm. He ate with sinners, and the Pharisees didn't like that. But he ate with Pharisees as well. That uh, meals were part of his mission. Mm. Um, so yeah, I I I. I still don't fully know why it's so important. I, I, the more I wrote the book, the more like, why is the meal so important? And yet it is uh, a meal where all are present to each other. And that's the other challenge in modernity. First, it was the TV. And now it's the, now it's the smartphones. And I, I learned a recent phrase the other day, fubbing, which means phone snubbing. Hmm. And I've not heard that one. Yeah, it's, it's it's a new one. It's Australian in origin, uh, uh, but it means uh, you're having dinner with someone and then they look down and they, they start texting. Mm. Uh, that constitutes a micro-ostracism. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, but even, even the fact that they have the phone out on the table means that you are potentially less important than whatever comes across the screen. Mm. Now that's a new challenge, right? So not only the family meal, but the family meal without those distractions. Mm. Put the phone away, put the TV away. Something that I've noticed, and maybe it started around the time of the pandemic, but it is just uh, simple things can make an incredible difference in your relationship with God. So taking a small step, um, and I wanted to ask you about grace in that respect um the the small what may seem like a small step because maybe it only takes 30 seconds um of of pausing to thank god for your food um can you weigh in on how that might change somebody's or, or how important that can be to an individual's relationship with god i think it's very important uh again 
this is the this is the baseline for keeping us alive and when you thank god for it you're acknowledging the source of your life and the source of your continued life and no matter how simple the meal i would argue that it elevates the meal uh because it it frames it i i make the same argument about drinking um when you all get when you drink together you should always have a toast because a toast transforms an amorphous event into a get together with a purpose hmm. with a focus and again I, I just sort of marvel at why we human beings need this and i don't fully know the answer but i kind of tell we do need it right that it it does change sort of the the flavor of the event and i think that's true with with grace and meals that uh it it, it it puts us on a higher more focused plane i was absolutely going to ask you about the drinking with the saints book and about being both a theologian and a mixologist uh because i know since i mentioned that in the intro many of our listeners were hoping that we would get around to this i imagine um you've, you've acknowledged your irishness um but i imagine <laughs> you when when you've sort of dabbled in this over the years publicly uh people are somewhat surprised, probably not your fellow Irish Catholics, uh, but some other folks, you're down in Waco, you're down in the South, maybe some some Protestants like myself are surprised by that. Um, but can you talk to us about the spirituality of, of drink um, and what you try to bring to mixology as somebody who is who's sort of intentionally coming to it with a faith perspective? You're right that there is a certain irony that uh, I, I wrote this book while being a professor at Baylor University which, for those of you who don't know, is the world's largest and oldest Baptist university <laughs> um, and is a dry campus. And so I'm often asked, like, how did you get away with writing this book at Baylor? And I have a one word reply, tenure. <laughs> yes, a blessing and a curse. <laughs> exactly. Indeed. In this, in this regard, it was more blessing than curse. But uh yeah, get tenure, then write about booze at a Baptist university. Smart strategy. <laughs> but uh, but to be perfectly honest with you, none of my colleagues raised an eyebrow because they recognized that the point of those books was not to encourage uh, drunkenness, but to encourage Christian merriment. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a matter of fact, I the, the goal is to sort of frame drinking in such a way that it encourages the best of drinking, which is moderation and moderation uh, and and of course, merriment. So that was what that was the animus behind those books. And what is the line um, between moderation and merriment? And, and how do things like the toast um, help people navigate that balance? I think it is important to be very mindful and cautious when you are drinking. And so anything that slows it down is a good thing. Mm. So the toast has that effect, right? And uh, and then keeping in mind, of course, just certain rules about moderation. And they vary from person to person. I mean, you, you have to have self-knowledge to have moderation because you have to know, okay, th these are my limits. Uh, this is my body weight. Um, how much food have I had today? How hydrated am I? There are a lot of little factors you have to know about yourself to know what the what the line is that you're you know you're speaking of. 
Um, but if you do have enough self-knowledge and then, of course, self-control, you you can figure, okay, okay, I'm kind of reaching that limit. Now let's scale back. Maybe I'll just have a glass of water for the next you know half an hour or so uh, or whatever that uh, it, it can be done there. The Bible consistently condemns drunkenness. But it also consistently portrays wine as a normal part of a healthy culture. Mm. Ooh, I'm a Lutheran from Wisconsin, so you don't need to convince me on this point. But um, if you is it same the with beer, <laughs> right? The devil's advocate question: um, Why should people incorporate? You know, if if they want to, obviously, you're not saying everybody has to. But what what is it about um, the enjoyment of drink that can be uh, a, a sort of uh, benefit to Christian merriment? Why, how can it be used? Or why why should people use it um, if they want to for that purpose? Well, according to the Old Testament, God gave man wine uh, in order to gladden his heart. Mm. Right? I, I believe that's the line from Proverbs, wine cheers the heart of man. So, um, so it is good uh, that we have this. Uh, God gave gave this to us for a reason we are actually one of the very few species on the planet uh, for whom alcohol is not a poison mm. uh, because we have a unique enzyme that that turns this potential toxin uh, into something that the body can handle and even in a certain way profit from mm. um, so uh, this was designed by god uh, and as long as we have it, like all the other goods that he has given us, as long as we have it in moderation, um, it, it it enriches our our meals. Hmm. Um, and wine in particular, I mean, I I, I push cocktails in the books, uh, which are used as, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word, a, a, an aperitif. They, they arouse the appetite for you to then go out and have a meal. But. Wine is particularly good during the meal because different kinds of wine can uh, bring out the flavors of food in such an extraordinary way. They, they can clear the palate or complement the flavors of the meal. So to pair you know, a good wine with a, with a good meal, really, it, it really is a, a magical thing. You probably get this question a lot, but do you have a favorite cocktail that you've written about over the years? Oh, yeah. So this is a, a, a terrible phrasing, but my daily driver is a martini. Um, but uh, there is a cocktail in um, the second and third books, St. Nick and Patron Saints, called The White Lady. Mm. And it is phenomenal. It's a high-maintenance drink. You have to beat egg white and confectioner's sugar for about five minutes until it forms soft peaks. And then you put it in the shaker with the other ingredients and shake 40 times. Um, my wife and I jokingly refer to it as a great first date cocktail <laughs> when you, you know, when you really want to impress, but by the third or fourth date, you're just going to be exhausted. So, um, <laughs> but it is, it's a really good cocktail. Mm. 
the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Every day, Chris helps unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it affects your wallet. Is the federal government using inflation to enforce their green agenda? If your energy price goes up, they'll try to sell you an electric vehicle. But if the price of your groceries go up, the Fed can do absolutely nothing. How do you get relief in your wallet while the federal government turns us into Europe? Whether it's happening in D.C. or down on Wall Street, it's affecting you financially. Be informed. Check out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Interesting. And how did you develop your personal affinity for for cooking, for mixing? Um, where does it come from in, in your background? Um, so uh, you mentioned I was Irish. Um, my mother was uh, French-Canadian. Mm. And so she came from a large family. She was one of nine. And um, they were Canadian, They uh, but they emigrated to California where I was born and raised. And uh, one of my earliest memories was the parties that uh, we, we would have at our house with my aunts and uncles. And I'd be a little kid and I had to go to bed early, but I would be awoken several times in the night by the uproarious laughter. <laughs> and um, I I never heard my parents laugh so hard as at these gatherings. And there was just such authentic merriment. You know, no one got plastered. But, you know, but when I woke up the next morning, there'd be a lot of empties on the table. Um, and it just seemed like, hey, they're having a good time. And it, it, it just seemed that hosting uh, and, and toasting were, were, were good things. And so when I got old enough, uh, I enjoyed uh, cooking for myself. And then I found that I enjoyed cooking for others. And then uh preparing a drink for myself preparing a drink for others i i, I just love the the social aspect of it all mm. and what tips do you have uh as we're sort of closing out the discussion here for people who are maybe intimidated by getting into cooking getting into uh cocktail mixing or uh, people who maybe they aren't overwhelmed by it but just don't do a whole lot of it and maybe want to pick up the book and, and try to bring some intentionality to their meals uh, are there are there good tips that you can offer oh absolutely uh i'm not a i'm not a great intuitive chef um but i know how to follow instructions <laughs> and that's it that's all you got to do you just got to it's, it's also like taking a test. You read the whole thing first, and then uh, the instructions, the ingredients, you read the whole thing first, and then you read it again step by step and then go through it. Um, but I do recommend reading the whole instructions first. So you get a sense of where you're going, and then go back and then perform the steps. Mm. That's so interesting. I love it. Well, Dr. Michael P. Foley, once again, a professor of patristics in the Great Text Program at Baylor University. He is the author, co-author of the new book, Dining with the Saints, The Sinner's Guide to a Righteous Feast. That'll be out on February 28th. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was wonderful. Absolutely. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. I heard the faint voice of reason And then it faded